At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Great. So the, the first half was a little bit parochial. A couple of Brits, even though they were from up north, you know. So, But uh, now we're moving across the channel and we're doing something that, of course, has been actually become somewhat more difficult since Brexit, unfortunately. We've, but we've always had a really strong tradition here in the psychedelic research group of uh, international students. And the next two are no exception to that. So this is Tommaso from Italy. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so tell us so, where you came from and why you got here. Yep. Yeah, actually, I came four days before Brexit. Uh-huh. And uh, it's one of the reasons why I'm still here, because I crossed the uh, channel like four days before they closed the borders. So <laughs> Was that deliberate? Yeah. Well done. Yeah. yeah. I knew that otherwise I would cut out. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I just, I'll just say something. That's fantastic. And I didn't know that. And thanks for sharing. But most people don't realize there's an enormous number of really talented Italians working in British uh, brain science and psychiatry. And it's, uh, it's sad for Italy, but it's great for us. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, you can do any of this in Italy. Like, we are pretty behind anything on, on scientific development. But, well, we are great on food. <laughs> <laughs> so you came just before Brexit. Yeah. And why did you come? So I have a, I think I have a slightly different background from like most of the people because I developed my fascination on psychedelics from psychoanalysis and in this quite similar way from like what Robin did in the past. And mm-hmm. I think like uh, I was studying psychology and then maybe I was thinking of maybe becoming like therapist. I'm not sure, but I had this fascination around psychoanalysis and from psychoanalysis and dreams, I got uh, into like yours and Robin's like interviews and talks about like the formal network and Freudian ego and all of mm-hmm. that. And then I got quite fascinated by the intersection between psychedelics and dreams and uh, mm-hmm. all that. And I think from there, the fascination from ne- neuroscience developed. But at the time, I... No, you are. You're like a Robin too. Huh? So when he's talking about Robin, by the way, he's talking about a guy called Robin Carhart Harris. And how many of you have got the book now? <laughs> Hands up higher. <laughs> so you'll discover in the book this... Uh, You'll read a lot about Carhart Harris in the book, but one bit you will read, and they'll make more sense to you now in the context of what Tommaso has just said, is that he came to me in, I think, about 2004, and he, he said, I want to do a PhD on how you can use psychedelics to explore the unconscious. And I said, well, that's like impossible, as you've gathered too. <laughs> anyway, it doesn't matter, because he, he's ended up being very famous and very successful as a psychedelic researcher, as undoubtedly you will as well, if you get on, <laughs> stick with the right track. Right. Okay, so you came to do those things, yeah. and what are, you do, what are you doing with us now then? Yeah, then, I, I mean, I had to train myself in neuroscience, and I've been to Maastricht University, and there, then I got trained in neuroscience, because, of course, like, you can jump from there to Imperial without, like, really solid base. I tried to write around, but no one answered at the time, so I was like, okay, I need to take a step back, and I went into neuroscience in Maastricht, and then uh, I 
I think I wanted to come here for quite a while and uh, came here to do an internship. And this is my third year at Imperial, I think. I've been uh, an intern for quite a while. Then I got hired as a research assistant and uh, finally moved into a PhD. And I've been worked around on a lot of things, but like kind of like maybe in a more superficial way than a full PhD. But I stick my head a lot around a lot of things from fibromyalgia to depression to, yeah, DMT extended state. So, yeah. Well, you can tell them about anything that interests you and interests them. <laughs> so what are the most interesting things you've learned? From yeah, I think like what I'm trying to move into now into into my PhD that is uh, in the line of work of like short acting psychedelics like 5-MeO-DMT that is uh, the main drug that I'm going to work into, into my PhD and trying to understand the neural correlates of this drug. And, uh, so explain to people what it is. Yeah, not everyone yeah. is. Not everyone has yet read the book. <laughs> yeah, 5-MeO-DMT is this uh, drug that comes from uh, Todd Venom originally and is also called the uh, God Molecule and it's kind of like induces this quite profound mystical experiences and emotional breakthroughs later on. And it's quite a short acting one, around an hour, and it has this quite profound uh, double, I would say, experience of giving you this mystical unity of experiences together with uh, emotional breakthroughs. And it's quite fascinating and it's quite a strong psychedelic and no one ever looked at how the brain is on that drug and it's something that we're going to probe in the next years. So we've done psilocybin, we're talking brain imaging, we've done LSD, we've done DMT, and, and this yeah. is... a. Uh, and you're one. You know, well, and yes, and, and probably of the big four that yeah, we'll have done yeah, them all, yes. Yeah. It's, quite, it's also quite a new one, like the history of it, because like mm, it's been mm. discovered like quite recently, I think, like compared to the others, like doesn't have like a very, very long use in the past. It's quite a, a new molecule that's been developed on. But yeah. they scrape it off the back of the toad, and that's a bit of a problem, yeah. isn't it? So you're not yeah. using the toad, are you? No, we're using uh, an spray. <laughs> no one to use it, you know, do not use toad-derived DMT, yeah. 5-methoxy, please, only use synthetic for sustainability reasons. That's a serious, serious issue. Yeah. And so why are people interested in it, apart from us? I think, like, because uh, it has, like, it's quite short-acting, around an hour, and then it induces, like, both a mystical experience and, an, and I think, afterwards, quite a big emotional catharsis and it's what like I've been shown that it correlates with like long-term improvements so if we have a drug that acts short and uh, it's able to like induce both of these experiences maybe can have quite therapeutic effects afterwards and also for the study of consciousness I think it's quite interesting. On, uh, do you think the brain will be different under uh, 5-MeO than it'll be under DMT do you? Maybe we don't know I think it's a big question mark that we have like it might be, it might be not. I think like the fact that no one ever moved into that direction at all. Like, but explain how you can do, do it intranasally. Is that what most people do? They, yeah. they, they snort it or smoke it? Yeah, yeah. But you're yeah, gonna... yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to use an intranasal spray that is going to induce a quite an intense experience from there. And uh, we see it's quite a new method of delivery that has been developed like by a pharmaceutical company that is trying to develop this drug later on for depression and all of that. And maybe addiction too. I think they're doing trials on addiction too. So the thing, the feeling is that they, this could be a equivalent to psilocybin, but yeah. but but shorter acting and maybe more powerful. Is yeah. that what you think? Yeah. yeah, the other side of like what I'm trying to develop in the PhD is like understanding like I think like it's more like something that I'm really curious about and I'm trying to pursue like as as long side of this five meo trial that is what is going to be my main project is trying trying to understand the effects of psychedelics on romantic relationships that. 
I think is it can be a quite a, a powerful thing, and I think there's a long history, like especially of MDMA, of as a tool of like mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. enhancing romantic relationships. Mm-hmm. But no one ever collected data about it. Like mm-hmm. even on surveys data, mm-hmm. like we have no idea on how MDMA impacts romantic couples later on. But uh, mm-hmm. if there's anything that I think can be compared to like the love potions that have been so popular into like for literature in the past is uh, mm-hmm. maybe MDMA and also psilocybin. I think it can be a really like love drug for some people, but yeah. we, we have no idea how it impacts relationships. And I think like uh, mm-hmm. it's quite a fascinating thing that I want to explore in the meantime while I'm here and uh, mm-hmm. I have the time to do it. So while I was sitting in a, a tent at the secret garden party, the only tent, it was a bit congested as rain was hammering down hours before my talk. Someone came up to me and started chatting, as they often do. You know, are you, are you Professor Nutt? Yeah, I am. And she told me that she has a very, very well-regarded TED Talk on this topic. Interesting. And she has, so you, I, I'll give you her name. I've forgotten her, blacked on her name at present, because she only said, I didn't remember it then, and she sent me an email recently. So she's been using MDMA in relationships, her own relationships, and uh, encouraging others. And she, she's got a really, really popular TED Talk on this. So afterwards, I will. Um, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll give you a, a, a link to her TED talk. And in fact, she was. Hmm? Do you know her name? Probably Anne Wagner. Anne Wagner. Uh, no, it was, no, no, I don't think so. But yeah, you learn a lot of interesting things at festivals. That, so she was. Uh, so I thought it was, I thought I was. It was such an interesting uh, thing to talk to her about uh, that I, I've actually put her in touch with my publisher to see if whether we could, she could actually maybe even turn that into a book. Oh, okay. So I, I think maybe you're the ideal person to, <laughs> to, to have, a, have a conversation with her because it makes perfect sense, you know, the fact. Yeah. I mean, because MDMA originally was used, I mean, when it was first discovered or rediscovered in the 70s, it was used lar- you know, largely in couples counselling, wasn't it? To yeah. Try to help yeah, yeah, yeah. and there are studies like published about it like in the past and now it's kind of like went a bit un- undercover and mm-hmm. I think like, one of the reasons why this is, is because like relationship distress or dissatisfaction is not a medical diagnosis. So like uh, bringing a drug for something that is not contained in any psychiatric manual is something that you could treat as uh, on a like regulatory point of view, a bit tricky, but I know that yeah. MAPS is trying to move it as a path to. Are you serious? Yeah, oh, I, I took like in the past, uh, like in Denver a bit with like a person involved at quite high level at MAPS and they said they're going to, they're developing a program on that. They're not sure how to bring it out, but they really No, I think to. that's going to be more challenging. I mean, I think treatment resistant PTSD is something that's, uh, that sort of resonates with uh, the FDA. Yeah. No one could possibly disagree with the need to treat yeah. people who've got, yeah. going to kill themselves if they don't get treated. I think encouraging romantic relationships might be harder to convince, yeah. but... but but if it's very safe as it is, and if it works, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think like the big elephant in the room about psychedelics is that I think that we have more and more evidence that they don't only like improve like psychiatric symptoms, but they can improve well-being in mm-hmm. otherwise healthy people. And we have like uh, quite strong data that will come out soon from a study at Imperial. Yeah, tell them about that because I yeah. read the paper. Yeah, well, I read the draft of your paper, so tell them about it. Go. Basically, like a few years ago, like there's been a trial where psilocybin was given to healthy people that uh, never tried a psychedelic before. And uh, we found that afterwards, these people reported improvements in well-being, in meaning in life and connectedness to significant others and all of that. And uh, I think this quite points to the case that uh, psychedelics 
can really improve like yeah like positive balance systems overall in in your life that are around like motivation and well-being and the meaning of life and uh, there's not a psychiatric drug that does that because if you if you give SSRIs to healthy people like in the best case it doesn't do anything but we don't like it's something that has been tried before but like people do not uh, report like improvements in well-being or yeah. meaning in life and overall satisfaction and i think like this whole environment of psychedelics and well-being it's something that in the long term might find its way i'm not sure how like, regulatory is very complicated yeah. and uh, well it may not need regulation because we've got oregon yeah we've now got oregon where you've got a, in fact california is going to go soon and colorado very soon they will all allow mushroom, well, magic mushrooms, to be used in well-being centers. Yeah. It would be actually rather good if you could start getting some of your questionnaires in there, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And there are, like, a few initiatives going on. Like, we are planning up this collaboration with, like, a retreat center in the Netherlands that oh. work with distressed couples that are on the edge of divorce. And so they are doing, very, like, couples counseling together with yeah. psilocybin uh, yeah. using the flexible environment that the Netherlands have to, yeah, uh, using psilocybin as a tool for aiding couples counseling. And uh, it's something that in our regulatory environment will likely like not work out anytime soon. But given that these things are already happening, I thought that was a quite a great idea to collect some data on it and see what happens before and after. And, uh, yeah, that would be brilliant. Are you, are you, you're planning to do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We That's are waiting for ethics approval from Imperial yeah. and we That's are quite Sorry, is that psilocybin or MDMA? It's in psilocybin. So they're the only legal yeah. one. So yeah, okay. Yeah. But be quite curious to see also like what's the difference in uh, couples mm. taking MDMA mm. together or mm. psilocybin together. And we don't really know. And mm. do they have a different um, impact on the couples? Like, mm. I'm not sure. They're very different on the acute effect. But uh, what about the f after four weeks, the effects on relationship satisfaction, I think? Yeah, it's quite... I think it'd be quite challenging to encourage couples to have psychedelics simultaneously because you'd have to have a third person there to protect them. Mm. So that might, might make yeah. things a little bit yeah. awkward yeah. in terms of yeah. the... But people are doing it like in the wild already anyway. Yes. So like... No, I but think, yeah, the effect yeah. is so you don't know, necessarily have to be, part, be together. <laughs> but the, yeah. whereas with MDMA, do you think with MDMA would work if, even if you weren't taking it in the proximity uh -huh. of the couple, of your partner? You mean like you both do an experience individually and then you see if it improved the relationship? Yeah, because I, I mean, yeah, I mean, because obviously they've got very different mecha brain mechanisms. Yeah. I, would, yeah. I would wonder whether MDMA would work as well if it wasn't taken simultaneously. Maybe yes, I think so. Think I think might? like because like if you think about both of these drugs kind of like improving your empathy and the capacity to communicate with each other's like i'd think that uh, later on it can have downstream positive effects on your relationships and i mean like you no know, trial now psilocybin assisted therapy looked at like how family members or significant others perceive their mm -hmm. partner mm -hmm. after the therapy and i think this is quite important because mm -hmm. look at ssris like not in all cases but like in, in some people can induce emotional blunting and uh, sexual dysfunction mm -hmm. and uh, it's pretty well known and if you look at like okay this person might be less depressed but maybe if they're not able to like connect anymore with their partner i think this in an overall quality of life can make a difference in fact i think you analyzed psilocybin escitalopram trial didn't you yeah and show yeah. that you just just tell people what you found yeah like i have this paper coming out that is first piece of research looking at the effects of psychedelics on sexual functioning and uh, 
satisfaction. And we looked at people that received psilocybin therapy for depression versus people that took uh, six weeks of desesterized escitalopram, that is a very popular marketed drug for depression. And uh, we found comparable like effects on uh, the reduction in depression. But when we looked at like sexual functioning use, we found that people treated with SSRIs tended to report decreases in uh, sexual arousal, sexual pleasure, the ability to have an orgasm and uh, so on. While people treated with psilocybin not only did not report these effects, but it looked that they had an improvement from baseline. And we have some results from survey research, so it's just naturalistic that this also happens in people without a psychiatric diagnosis. So I think this is mm. quite interesting. And we even know the brain mechanisms. They're very different, and we can talk about that yeah. at the time. Yeah. Thank you very much, Sinasu. Thank you. Questions? Hi, yeah, uh, thank you for that. It was really interesting. Um, just to pick up on what you're talking about, the, the kind of drugs and, uh, and use of relationships, I wonder if you're aware of any research or, or whether people are looking into 2CB, which is another kind of psychedelic, which is well known potentially as a kind of, you know, in terms of relationships and, and sexual function. Mm -hmm. 2CB is still quite unresearched uh, psychedelics, like there's uh, a study that has been recently published by Maastricht University that looked at the effects of 2CB acutely, and they found that the effects were pretty similar to classic psychedelics, but they had a component that tended more towards like stimulant drugs, and uh, the experiential depth was less than classic psychedelics, and also the ego dissolution that uh, the drug induced and the euphoria was higher. So like, I think for now is the only study that looked uh, a psychedelic in uh, a research at 2CB in a research setting. But I know from like popular like culture that 2CB has been highlighted as something that for couples might be particularly like uh, therapeutic and helpful. But uh, for now it's just anecdotal evidence. Do we know uh, to what extent prolactin or I'm really nervous. My mind's just gone blank. Well, that'll do. Oxytocin. Do we know which is the, the foremost component in terms of these mechanisms when you talk about empathy and, mm. and love and, and whatever else? Mm -hmm. From uh, MDMA, we know like uh, quite a bit on uh, its effects on like uh, oxytocin and MDMA can release oxytocin acutely together with like serotonin and the dopamine and uh, overall this uh, release uh, can create the empathic effect of this drug. And interestingly, like oxytocin has been studied quite a bit in the context of like couples therapy, for example. And a few years ago, there was this oxytocin nasal spray that was uh, rather popular and they tried to market it as a tool for couples therapy. And I think that still now there's some research going on, but the effects has been, have been underwhelming later on. And uh, I've talked with uh, actually a, re a researcher that did quite a lot of studies on oxytocin and couples, and she was saying like, MDMA is probably the right one if we all want to go in, in any direction on this. But an, an interesting fact about oxytocin that is like, despite it's been popularized as kind of the love and bond hormone, there's also research that shows that it increases feelings of en envy and also like of enjoyment of others' misfortunes. So there's kind of this uh, <laughs> effect that it might promote bonding towards your in-group, but it might promote also discrimination towards your out-group. So yeah. it's a quite a multifaceted neurotransmitter. Thanks. Um, it's a fun one, so don't worry. Anecdotally, I know a bunch of people who actually broke up with their partner after taking psychedelics. So I wanted to know whether you think psychedelics will net-net lead to more breakups or makeups. <laughs> <laughs> That's an amazing question that I would love to like explore in this naturalistic survey that I want to launch. And I think it depends, like if I can speculate a little bit, I think like 
if a couple take uh, psilocybin or classic psychedelic together, I think it might be easier to understand uh, if someone really loves you. And I think there can be also like a breakup induced by it because some people can like not feel emotionally re resonant with each other on the experience. And I think that can definitely contribute to a breakup. On MDMA, I think this is less likely to happen. But I think in some cases can too, and sometimes like just the honesty that MDMA can uh, promote might help some people realize that maybe they're not right for each other, so maybe they've been together just for like habit and uh, there's nothing much there left, so can help them like split up. So I think that's a very interesting thing and I think it really depends on the nature of the couple and maybe of the level of satisfaction before. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe there's some like baseline characteristic of the couple that then can predict what happens after the experience. I've heard of couples using MDMA so that they can break up amicably. <laughs> and that seems to be quite sensible yeah. as well. Thank you, Sebastian.